Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two year contracts, they said, What the f are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Hello, and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. Hey, guys. Dr. Santosh here, pediatric infectious disease doc and researcher. I cut myself today, Santosh, trying out on my new hobby of wood carving. Another thing I am clearly not suited for. No, no, you're suited. You're suited. It just, it's going to take some, you know, blood, sweat, and tears to get good at it. You're suited. So, So there's a lot of blood involved not i mean not like huge amounts of blood but frequent okay okay yeah and i keep i i think i've told you this already you should really go get one of the like the thumb guard well all Um, i know is i am stuck on on this on this new hobby and i am stuck on band-aid brand and (laughs) band-aid stuck on me and i thought what a good week to talk about some of the finer or at least lighter points of wound care. Oh, yeah. This is, I guess, a, 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 yeah. This, I like that. It, it this is one of well. the better segues. The premise was utterly manufactured, but yeah. <laughs> I mean, not entirely. You do you do wood carve. And, and I am anybody... so <laughs> a rare glimpse behind the scenes, audience. <laughs> if you hadn't sussed all this out already, by the way, and, what the and just like oh yeah that totally tracks <laughs> so let's let's briefly talk about wound care and it's been around for a long time and it also hasn't really changed all that much um in the ancient days they referred to basically plasters as the equivalent of wound dressings which were mixtures of substances that had mud or clay plants mm-hmm. herbs crocodile poop all of these uh <laughs> sometimes honey 
um, sheep dung. A, a surprising amount of excrement was put into wound dressings, which may have influenced uh, <laughs> the infection rate in ancient times. Well, it, it it's kind of odd. It's strange. There are definitely some excrements that contain antimicrobial compounds and what we would call like good organisms that are actually protective for human wounds, meaning that probably those bacteria might be pathogenic in other, you know, species and stuff like that, but it works for us. So yeah, we, we took advantage of that. A lot of it was done just by observation that like, hey, when I put this on the wound, it seems to get less yucky. I feel like that is my Sometimes. first problem with, with the creation of uh, wound care additives along the way. Who okay. was first like, you know, I fell into some alligator poop or some <laughs> sheep poop and all of a sudden things seem better. Oh, well, actually, I can give you a kind of a cool anecdote how that actually happened with modern day drugs, if you want me to Go jump it. the shark a little bit. Yeah. So um, you use uh, bacitracin occasionally, Josh? Oh, on, or... on my multiple cuts from wood carving? Absolutely. <laughs> so ba- It's my story and I'm sticking to it. Yeah, yeah. So bacitracin, so a bacteriologist named Balbina Johnson... Uh, actually isolated it. But what happened was there was a girl named Margaret Margaret Tracy, um, not too long ago. She just died in 1994. But Margaret Tracy had fallen and had a bad wound. And I think it was something like a sewer grate or something like that, that she fell into. And her wound, even though it should have really been, you know, ugly and disgusting and bacteria filled, it actually didn't get all that infected. So uh, Dr. Johnson actually isolated the compound that inhibited the bacterial growth. And because it was isolated from Margaret Tracy, she called it Bacitracin. So there was totally, in modern times at least, a time when someone's like, hey, well, so-and-so fell into sewage and their thing didn't get infected. I wonder if it has something to do with the sewage. And almost certainly then, Josh, it's been done in historical times where someone had the same thing with like crocodile poop. Well, while not sewage, one of the most common ingredients used in plasters was oil, uh, different kinds. And oil may have provided some protection as most bacteria tend to grow poorly in oil. And it also would have prevented any bandages from sticking to the wound as oil is, you know, slippery. Uh, But one of the (laughs) earliest known wound care products was beer. And The Sumerians brewed 19 different types of medical or pharmaceutical beers. (laughs) Yeah, they did. (laughs) And an interesting prescription for wound healing in a Mesopotamian uh, tablet stated, pound together fir turpentine, pine turpentine, tamarisk, daisy, mix in milk and beer in a small copper pan, spread on skin and bind, and he shall recover. (laughs) Yes, ye shall. (laughs) That's really fantastic. And this kind of feeds in to the other microbial and antimicrobial cocktails and compounds that we've been finding as part of like medical archaeology that we've talked about in past episodes, huh? 
Yeah, so we, we've we tended to focus most of the time on our wound care at the drugs you get to prevent bacteria from growing in your wound or on in your blood. But how uh-huh. do you kind of prevent that surface of the wound from getting infected? Um, well, let's go back to my ancient Egyptians and the first Yay. people to use adhesive bandages, you know, because mummies. Um, and oh. certainly, <laughs> certainly <laughs> amongst okay. their other wound care, they were among some of the first populations to apply honey to the wounds. Honey, grease, and lint, not like belly button lint, but like linen, were the main yeah. components of <laughs> of plaster used in Egyptians. So lint made from vegetable fibers probably added drainage because most vegetable fibers are really good uh, due to their cellulose structure at absorbing seepage or, or, uh, yeah. well, I mean, that's, that's what it is. Um, grease. No, no, I know. It's just, it's, and it's, then it's, uh, seepage. And then animal grease and honey may have protected the wound from infection uh, by providing both a barrier to bacteria entering the wound from the grease and to honey having some antibacterial properties that we've talked about. So why would this kind of thing work? Like you shove oil and grease and sugar into a wound. Well, sugar tends to draw water into its midst through osmosis, uh-huh. and this yep. will dry the bed of the wound. So it keeps your wound from getting damp by drying it all towards the honey, and it dehydrates the bacteria that cause infection, leaving them weak and fragile and easily fractured uh, by our immune system. Yeah. And I think, Josh, what you mentioned there at the last is super, super important. And it may have been a, a, a misunderstood part of why even with these <laughs> very intricate uh, salves and adhesives or non-adhesives and bandages that they used, why sometimes it didn't work. You do have to have an intact immune system, specifically a chemotactic system, which can allow the blood cells to get to the side of the wound and attack um, in order for any of these compounds to work at all. Because if you do not have an intact working immune system, then you can put salves, antibacterials, coverings, bandages all day, but eventually the bacteria will win because that skin barrier is so integral. Now, a lot of times when we're talking about ancient Egypt and we think of mummies and all those, we have a certain color scheme we tend to picture. And some of that is also due to oxidization and rust. Uh But interestingly, a lot of Egyptians painted wounds on living and dead with green color and pigments uh, for a couple reasons. Well, their reason was green indicates life. So you want green on a wound. (laughs) Which is kind of funny because the green that you get from like gangrene is life. It's just the wrong life. It's It's the bacteria. Green may indicate life, but the green paint that they used contained copper, which is toxic to bacteria. So you paint wounds with antibacterial metals. You wrap them with osmotic compounds and uh, oil barriers and dehydrate the bacteria. All of these things were learned from preventing decomposition in embalming. So some of the earliest advances in controlling infection came from my favorite civilization to go on about. (laughs) That's really fantastic. You know, preserving tissue in death 
or preserving living tissue from getting infected. Same principles. And that makes a ton of sense. Yeah. So now let's jump ahead a little bit to uh, some of these and other ancient wound care things that we'll talk about, you know, were the sugar and honey, but also maggots and leeches, which we are starting to use again today in very controlled environments. Right. Maggots, especially, I, you know, when we get talking about those, I'm going to get excited because it's cool. Yeah. So, I mean, well, we, we can take a brief detour to talk about maggots. The care, of, <laughs> the care of deep wounds is a major challenge to surgeons. You know, although most of the time we can sew up these tiny, small, clean cuts, skin above deep penetrating injuries that's likely to be infected, imagine almost like a pizza wedge kind of wound where the point is deep inside you and the wedge, the, the crust is wide open near the surface, those are usually left open to allow doctors to routinely clean the cavity and to let your own body grow new tissue that's called granulation tissue from the base up. Um, Now, there is a new cleaning regimen that some doctors are starting to use where they'll use maggots to clean it out, Mm -hmm. uh, which I know what you're thinking, gross. But after you clean the maggots out, you know, you let them do the little Hoover vacuum and then you sprinkle some sugar on it, granulated sugar, baker's <laughs> baker's sugar, or you spread sugar paste in the wound two to four times a day before applying new bandages. Now, the sugar will liquefy as it absorbs fluid from the wound, so it's easy to clean out. It can be rinsed out along with dead tissue at the next dressing change. So sugar solutions are starting to come back into vogue in wound care, which we haven't seen for a few hundred years. It's so wild. I I love because it's a simple tool. It's super, super cheap. And especially sugar and maggots, they're very available. You can find, well, uh, to be sure. Down at the local Walgreens. (laughs) No, no. (laughs) Because you're Sometimes in the same bag. Oh, for the love of God. Because you're using it in a medical capacity, uh, it, it does has to be manufactured with a little bit more of a strict protocol so that, for instance, uh, the sugar that you eat can have a permissible amount of bacteria. It's a very small, teeny tiny amount, but it, it is there. And other um additives and stuff like that, which allows the sugar to not clump and these kind of things. So you do have to manufacture it separately. And then I'm supposing, because this is the same principle as leeches, that the maggots also, which eventually turn into flies, you do have to raise them specifically to uh, a certain standard so that they're safe for use in a, you know, this medical capacity. Uh, well, Let's let's talk about those. I'll I'll take you first through pharmaceutical grade sugar. It's a real grade, uh, yep. <laughs> reported in Sugar News and Reports. All <laughs> all things that are real words. I have read. <laughs> yeah, that's not that's not science fiction. No, that's... <laughs> um, alongside taste, and of course, we've all talked about a placebo effect in sugar pills uh, many times, and. Sugar-coated tablets are often protected from the damaging effects of air and moisture, easier to swallow, combined with coloring agents, quickly identifiable. So in order to make pharmaceutical-grade sugar, what do you need? 
Well, it can be cane, beet, sugar. It can be cane sugar or beet sugar, and it can't have sulfur or any heavy metals like lead, arsenic, mercury. Um, this is a very technically demanding process. So there are limited people who can provide the technical know-how to make pharmaceutical grade sugar so uh next time you see one of those narcos shows and they're like yeah <laughs> this is pure uncut golden cane <laughs> like uh cnh mommy yeah. uses it to bake her cakes man <laughs> um now I, I just i want to tell everybody else out there just if you're thinking about it no that doesn't mean that your food grade sugar has any of these other chemicals in it. Uh, it. If there is any small amount of heavy metals, it is, you know, parts per billion type of thing. It's just that the difference between food grade where, you know, if you ingest a little bit, you just basically poop it out versus if you're using it medical grade, you have to be even more strict on top of that. So don't everybody freak out that there's all those other things in the food grade sugar. <laughs> And some of the largest exporters of pharmaceutical-grade sugar actually come out of India right now. Mm. Um, now, as for maggots, in the U.S., medicinal maggots, uh, as opposed to <laughs> recreational or <laughs> no, no, or no. free-roaming. We're, 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 we're sticking with recreational. That's I, I'm never saying it differently ever again. <laughs> like if I see... If I see maggots just sat on the street, I will 100% say, oh, look at those recreational maggots. And everybody hanging out with me will look at me weird. <laughs> so medical maggots are regulated by the FDA as a prescription-only, single-use medical device, whereas in some other countries, they're regulated uh, like a drug. Here, we treat them like a technology. Like a device, yeah. So it's the same like a scalpel. Mm -hmm. And part of the reasons, interestingly, the reason we classify them as a device is, uh, as opposed to a drug, works on how they're transported. Most cases, since maggots are highly perishable, they're susceptible to transportation problems and delays. They're temperature sensitive, so they have to be shipped by overnight courier, like, you know, FedEx. And their arrival is timed to no more than 24 hours before the wound. Most drugs can sit on the shelf for years, but sterile devices have the kind of rapid turnover that we are quantifying with maggots. So delivery delays and exposure to extreme temperatures can decrease their survival. And how do we use them? Well, they're bound up across pressure ulcers or these deep wounds. Now, maggots only eat dead tissue. This has been a yeah, huge yeah. thing that's come up on shows like Fear Factor, where people are tossed into you know a thing of worms, and they're like, oh my god, I'm going to be eaten alive. You're not, because yeah. the fact that you're alive means they'll have no interest in you. <laughs> and Josh, this is something that it's so important because we haven't been able to replicate this with a medical device, right? So if you talk about how we normally otherwise debride tissue, that, you know, debriding is that process of taking away tissue that you don't want, or, you know, in this case, the dead tissue, we can't find any other device or tool that's so discriminating between, okay, that's dead and it has to go, and this is alive, and you should not cut into that. This, these guys are like precision surgeons. Who work my, like most surgeons according to their stomach. Yeah. <laughs> 
exactly. They they're being paid in the flesh that they're consuming anyway. They're taking that's crazy. They're taking a literal pound of flesh. They're to, <laughs> well milligrams, but sure. Yeah, I didn't say over how long because. <laughs> Because one of the most common uses for maggots is not just surgical wounds, but specifically diabetic foot ulcers. Wow. Yeah, yeah. That that is a good example. I like that. So there have been controlled studies that demonstrate both the safety and efficacy of maggot therapy. And for centuries, you know, these were kind of noticed on battlefield wounds. (laughs) I'm sorry. I'm just thinking of a giant maggot sitting in an armchair with a sports coat. (laughs) How does that make you feel? (laughs) So the first modern day user of maggot therapy was orthopedic surgeon William Bayer, uh, not related to Bayer Pharmaceuticals. And he was apply systematic maggots bound up to non-healing wounds while a professor at Johns Hopkins in Baltimore in 1929. And he used his entire kind of maggot therapy career to treat over 100 children with osteomyelitis and diabetic foot wounds. And all this work was published after his death in 1931. Part of the time, although maggots were pretty popular, they were expensive and getting disease-free maggots uh, was yep. tricky. They there cost sometimes as much as $5, which in the 30s was a pretty hefty price to pay for surgical maggots trademarked from Ladera Laboratories in New York. Um, also, as antibiotics became more prevalent, we needed maggots less. So they kind of phased <laughs> out. <laughs> no, yeah, because you you basically had less and less gangrene or dead tissue off of a wound because the antibiotic would allow the person to heal and keep more of the tissue. And then the remaining tissue would kind of dry and scab uh, rather than having to be like debrided off because, oh, and maybe this is what people might not understand. If you have the dead tissue staying behind in a wound, okay, that becomes a nidus where bacteria can hang out and multiply and cause the infection, but the antibiotics can't get to that tissue because there's no blood supply to it. So it is actually really, really important that you do get rid of that dead tissue. So what is a medical grade maggot? Well, it is about (laughs) $80 a pound. they, not not per maggot. Yeah. No, no, about $80 for, well, it's actually in meters. It's not a pound. It's probably closer to like oh, grams. But neat. Okay. $80, they are controlled by selecting a safe and effective species and strain, which are then chemically disinfected to make the maggots germ-free. They ship with special dressings that prevent them from leaving the wounds unescorted. And they're basically quality controlled measured through breeding and production. So not every species is safe and effective. And currently in the U.S., we use Phoenicia lucilia serotica. Mm, love her. Um, and I think I they, saw her on the cover of Maggots Weekly. I don't know. She did like seven different covers. So you basically dump about five to ten larvae per square centimeter of wound surface. So it's actually not crawling with them. You know, if you have a tiny wound, you only need a handful of them. And then you bind them up so they can't escape. And they're left within the dressing for 48 to 72 hours. At that point, 
they are done eating at the hometown buffet and they can be removed and sent off to their next assignment. I don't know. What? I wasn't able to figure out what we do with maggots once we're done with them. No, 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 no. They're they're a single-use device. <laughs> I know, but like how it didn't talk about how we dispose of them. We don't transfer them patient to patient, but it's just like, no. well, guys, thanks for no. the memories. <laughs> No, no, no. They're a disposable device, so they go into medical waste and they get incinerated. Oh, poor guys. Yeah. That's that's one hell of a last meal. All the yeah, all the work that they do and uh yeah, you you cannot use them on two different you can't not just two different people, you can't use them on two different wounds. So you can't move them around wounds on a single patient if you have multiple wounds. So uh, yeah, once they're, once they're scraped off or taken off or everything, they go into one of those big red baggies um, where all the rest of the medical waste goes or path waste. And yeah, they get burned to a crisp. Um, what I thought was really fascinating is that of the several surveys they've done, most of the time, Patients are actually totally okay with this and do have some anxiety from escaping maggots from the dressing, mostly just seeing it escape, but it's more likely to be healthcare professionals and administrators who are disgusted by the thought than the patients receiving it with chronic wounds. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, and, and you know, sometimes the patient is obtunded, you know, they, they're not able to speak because they're, you know, they're sick, they might be septic. But you're right. They often don't see what's going on, Josh, because, you know, a diabetic foot wound, you know, down there on an ulcer at the bottom of your foot or something like that. And uh, a lot of the times those people aren't fit enough to be able to sit up and look at the maggoted wound. Um, but yeah, they do feel better and they see the aftermath of it, which is, you know, it's healed and it looks beautiful. Now, for those of you interested in this sort of thing, the cost of uh, maggot debridement therapy or MDT is actually covered by most insurance. Why? Because it's a fiscally prudent choice, inexpensive, fast, effective, simple, and safe enough to be performed by only minimally trained professionals. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Because their, their words, not mine. <laughs> it's the coolest thing, right? So, you know, it, if you want to learn how to use a scalpel or if you want to learn how to do anything else in surgery, lots and lots of hours of training, right? In this case, to debride this wound with maggots, you just have to know how to take them out of the bag <laughs> and how to put them on the wound. Sprinkle on the wounds, you know, not like pharmaceutical grade sugar, but yeah, yeah. sprinkle them on the wound, <laughs> then wrap it up, let it bake, and voila, you're there. <laughs> you just said voila. Yeah, that's like what I voila. said, voila. <laughs> so <laughs> let's drift away from bugs for a little bit and get back to more traditional wound care style dressings. Uh, in fact, okay. we'll jump, you know, from ancient Egypt up to the railroad era. And oh, uh, here in the United States. Mm -hmm. So okay. after attending, uh, after the Civil War, we started to see more concern about aseptic environments and a famous lecturer from that time was Dr. Joseph Lister, who, oh, yeah. who would travel around speaking about, uh, he would basically say in so many words, wash your gosh dang hands. Yes. <laughs> he was, he was one of these weirdos, these strange people who had this new concept that, uh, especially before performing, uh, medical 
tasks that one ought to clean the implements, i.e. the hands. Very, very strange thinking. Now, being after the Civil War, a lot of military minds were interested in at least hearing what Lister had to say. Um, And one of the groups of people who attended his lectures were, well, several Johnson brothers, uh, Robert Wood Johnson, James Wood Johnson, and Edward Mead Johnson, who all had been too young to serve in the Civil War, but two of their older brothers did serve in the Union Army. Well, inspired by Lister, as well as their older brother's experiences in wartime, Robert Wood Johnson joined forces with his brothers to create Johnson & Johnson in 1886. Now, you may be asking yourself, uh, well, they were in... Some of the first products they sold were mass-produced sterile dressings and gauze to be shipped out to, well, pretty much the Union Army. Okay, okay. So I I personally was going to ask... Where's the third Johnson? uh, Is it Johnson and Johnson and Johnson? Johnson and Johnson. (laughs) I mean, don't get me wrong. Probably it was a good marketing move to just keep two Johnsons. (laughs) The last thing thing you want in your business are too many Johnsons waving around. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I mean, I just feel bad for the third Johnson. I mean, he was there and everything. It's just like you're ignore you're ignoring a whole Johnson. Well, a brief tour, <laughs> just tucking that Johnson back. <laughs> yeah, like if it like it didn't even exist, you know, standing there, you know, trying to be acknowledged. Well. All three Johnsons had previously worked with another company and inspired by Lister, they wanted to form their own. Two of them had completed their contracts and could send off with basically taking over an old sewing plant and meat market, bringing over workers, (laughs) bringing over workers and machines. But their third brother, who also had some of the know-how in business, was still under contract when the firm was formed. So he joins them later, and it was simply two names on the LLC. Gotcha. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay. On a casual vacation to Colorado... Uh, Company President Robert Wood Johnson, riding the rails with sterile gauze bandages and dressing, um, Uh happened to sit near the railroad's chief surgeon. And he started chatting with him. And he learned that a lot of the workers who were servicing the trains and laying down the the line's cross-country tracks, you know, working on the railroad on all the live long day. All the live long day. By the way, the the railroad surgeon, the chief surgeon is the one who worked on the people working on the railroad. He didn't operate on the railroad. Just to pass the time away. And (laughs) he would often hear the whistle blowing. And with all the injuries to their fingers, he'd have to rise up pretty early in the morn because a lot of these railroad workers were injured due to the dangerous nature of their work. And here's the real kicker. Because building a railroad, you're going to be stationed in a more rural area Far from civilization and medical facilities stocked with supplies, many of these railroad employees would die from simple injuries. So Robert Wood Johnson said to himself, you know, we make sterile dressings and gauze and we often ship it along the railroads. Why don't we start making specifically for the railroad workers first aid kits? Oh, nice. Yeah, absolutely. And Johnson & Johnson began to be whipped around the country 
on every railroad as well as being supplied to military, really becoming an innovator and a leader in medical and surgical supplies. Now, all these sterile gauzes and bandages are going to use up a lot of cotton. Sure, sure. Yes. Which means you need somebody who can negotiate for the purchase of all that cotton. And that brings us to Earl Dixon of Grandview, Tennessee in 1892. Okay, so he's our cotton guy. He is. He is the Johnson & Johnson cotton buyer responsible for swaddling every Johnson in downy soft cotton. (laughs) Well, I mean, not the Johnsons themselves, but the, 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 the bandages that the Johnsons are making. Anything that you injured. He would he would wrap in cotton, and he's a young, newly married fellow working at J and J's corporate headquarters in New Brunswick, New Jersey. All of his life was wonderful, except for one thing: making not only an amazing callback, but a great segue. Earl's wife Josephine was a mess in the kitchen. I love that this is documented. <laughs> right, Please, poor girl. Okay, listeners at home, this is not me being toxic or misogynistic. Or at least this is not me being firsthand misogynistic. <laughs> yeah, he's he's really just reading right off of the. Uh, is this is a memoir, or uh, what was it? This is lo- this in this individual bit that built the episode was identified on the Johnson and Johnson Company corporate webpage, as well as okay. numerous other confirmatory sources that all said poor Josephine Dixon couldn't make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich to save her life. Um, <laughs> she Here's why Earl Dixon was the perfect person to invent the Band-Aid. He worked for Johnson & Johnson as their cotton buyer, so he knew how to get access to a ton of cotton. And he had someone in his life who really needed them. Because working in the kitchen, Josephine would get cut constantly from all the knives and kitchen tools she had to work with, dropping them, having butterfingers... Uh, burning herself like it sounds like this woman couldn't turn sideways in the kitchen without injuring herself and while and while they would frequently tape up her skin with cotton balls this proved very time consuming and therefore an imperfect solution Uh, so she had to endlessly endure the makeshift gauze and tape bandages that her husband kept applying to her fingers and the unwieldy nature of you know putting a huge roll of cotton surrounded by some tape, would compromise her working non-banded digits, causing her to fumble even further with the kitchen knives in what I can only imagine is some hilarious sitcom like, whoa, 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 whoa! And... (laughs) Yeah, like a I Love Lucy episode, sure. Add all this... Add to all this just the act of hand washing when the entire mess of gauze and tape would slip off, and poor Earl would have to start taping her up all over again. Oh... (laughs) Okay, so there's just this constant, you know, like, slash pain blood cycle going on here. Yeah. So Earl finally got tired of being like, I am using way too much material. And he hit on the idea of getting a section of gauze tape that already had cotton in it flattened out and that could be essentially pulled out as like a sheet bandage you know like sheet cakes so instead of instead of a single bandage right you pull out this tape with gauze already on it and simply wrap it around so this is what he did because he's like i am bandaging josephine so much that it has to be easy and simple and fast So you just go scissors, snip, adhesive, done. Right. So although a little hesitant at first, 
when Earl uh, presented his brilliant idea, James Johnson quickly recognized the widespread appeal once Dixon's like, no, really, look how easy it is. Any idiot can put a bandage onto skin by themselves without requiring the help of a medical professional. And Johnson & Johnson immediately began to produce and sell what they called the bandage ache. Hey, I'm, I'm, I'm guessing that we're... We're getting an etymology here. At first, these bandage aids were made by hand, a pretty painstaking process that needed to be addressed before, you know, you could get mass production and lower prices. And as we said, each Band-Aid of the original brand was about 45 centimeters long by 6 centimeters wide. Oh, uh, 40 by 6. Go ahead. So Metric, you're, you're... bring us into Imperial system. <laughs> Uh, no, no, I always think that like uh, your pinky is about a centimeter in width. So, um, okay, so these were fairly, you know, bulky things. Um, they were, uh, it looks like they were suitable for fairly large wounds. Yeah, 45 centimeters for those of you playing along at home who are American is 17 inches or just over a foot and a half per Band-Aid. Yeah. So it would have to be, you know, as we said, trimmed down a bit. Uh, also, and I find this really historically interesting, uh, initial sales were slow. Um, they only made about $3,000 worth of Band-Aid sales in that first year because oh, okay. people couldn't, like, people didn't understand what it was for or how to use it. They're just like, what the <laughs> hell do you want me to put sticky cotton tape on my hands for? Oh, sure, because... The modus operandi for most people at that time, if you got cut, was just to, like, move the fuck on. Was to wrap a little gauze around it or tie it. Or, you know, you'd go to a doctor who would smear a salve on it. Or you'd, sure. or you'd I don't know, rub some bugs or pour some Dirt. sugar yeah. on me <laughs> in the name of antibacterial love. Um, yeah, so they really had slow sales because people just didn't get it. They're like, why are you selling this? So who, they asked themselves, would be the likeliest target for Earl Dixon's Band-Aids? And after okay. much thought, the genius marketers concluded that nobody but nobody hurt themselves more than young boys. <laughs> so every single true, yes. so every single Boy Scout troop in the country got free Band-Aid packages to the Scoutmasters. Smart. Okay. All right. Very, very good. Grateful mothers across the country became alerted to the wonders of the sticky strip. <laughs> oh, man. That's fantastic. So, you know, first, this is the difficulty with creating any new technology, right? You have to introduce it to the world. By the way, Josh, this is before any kind of like internet social media, anything at all. And so you have to introduce it. You have to demonstrate the use somehow. And then you finally have to show how this is better than whatever current solutions are available. And that's that's a hard kind of bridge to, to cross a lot of the time. So there have been other inventions all throughout history, including medical inventions that have just fallen by the wayside because it really hasn't been, you know, taken up the way that it should. Yeah. So let's talk about a few other little milestones for band-aids. Uh, 
just because it's fun. This is how you kind of how do you get a country to mass accept a new health technology, whether it is bandages, antibacterial drugs, vaccines or masks, you know. When people don't do anything as a nation, and then you are trying to introduce and get people to sign on, you have to take a few marketing steps. Yeah, yeah, you gotta <laughs> you gotta take a weird page out of advertising and learn from them. In 1950, Little Golden Books published Doctor Dan the Bandage Man, and <laughs> the story. Oh, I hope our listeners. I hope you guys have at least heard of Little Golden Books. Josh, I know you and I grew up with them. They were like the first books that we read. It had a, a, a golden spine. Dr. Dan the Bandage Man is about a little boy who scratches his finger while playing. He runs to his mom who washes it clean and bandages his finger good as new with a Band-Aid, trademark, band <laughs> brand adhesive bandage. For the rest of the book, all, I don't know, 12 pages of it, every time a friend, family member, pet, or favorite toy gets a boo-boo, Dan puts a bandage on it to make it better. Uh, Dr. Dan's first printing, so, you know, you might be asking yourself, how successful was this? Uh-huh. Because this was the equivalent of, you know, like a Saturday morning cartoon. You know, instead of action figures, they're like, hey, want a Dr. Dan the Bandage Man brand Band-Aid for your boo-boos? Oh, so that's <laughs> 10 times fast. Yeah. <laughs> I cannot. Well, the first printing, 1.75 million copies is the largest first printing of any little golden book to date. Wow. That's awesome. A year later, and in your field, Santosh, in 1951, the very first kid-friendly designs were featured on the back of Band-Aid tape, Offering, perhaps for the first time ever, serious competition to a mother's kiss to, as a way to mend a skinned knee. <laughs> yeah, and it was, it, this one helped the kid more than anything else, that it wasn't just like a, you know, a peach or salmon colored, you know, adhesive, that it would actually have, you know, maybe your favorite um, comic character on it, or it would have puppies or Something like that. Something that would make it prettier than just like a flesh flap. Not bad. From its introduction in you know the late 1800s, by 1950, we have you know two million books promoting band aids out there for little kids. They're being given away free to Boy Scouts. Kid friendly designs are on the back of the tape. By 1958, vinyl tape was introduced instead of the fabric version, making them mm -hmm. waterproof. Yay! And then in the late 90s, we introduced what I always like to call the voodoo band-aids. Santosh, have you used the liquid spray-on bandages? The, <laughs> I've never, I don't think I've used the spray-on. I've used the, I mean, it's essentially super glue, right? It's the, I, I've no, used no, the paint. No, don't turn into that TikTok girl. What? <laughs> no, no, not for your hair. Oh, God, not the Gorilla Glue. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. But essentially, it's the same adhesive compound. I've I've used the paint on the one where you actually um, you 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 paint it on rather than spray it on. Yeah. So I figured we'll we'll close out talking about voodoo bandages when a hus another husband and wife team when a bandages in an awkward spot on Dan Op's hand couldn't seal the cut underneath it wouldn't heal. So it ended up developing a staph infection and he had to have surgery. So his wife 
chemist Carrie-Anne Greenhall said nothing could have prevented it unless, of course, she invented something. And she had a doctorate in organic chemistry and remembered a polymer used in a lab there as a student that formed a film when accidentally spilled. Well, she ended up remembering the composition of that polymer and created it into a new spray-on or liquid bandage, which at first called Carry Cure, later changed the name to Natural Seal, and she started the business with three forms of the liquid, for people, for pets, and for livestock. Um, oh, cool. Okay. Now, it has been tested by tattoo artists, and it actually can be sprayed or put on. So these liquid bandages now can conform to your wounds in ways that... Well, the regular smaller different size bandages can't, and they have the same waterproof, so now you can take them into the water. They were originally developed uh, in this by this woman for pets and livestock as well as her husband, but the military took this one step further and came up with even more rapidly sealing ones as well as chemical ones that stopped bleeding known as quick clot. Oh, nice. That's, that's some good branding right there. So, Santosh, what's Quick Clot? I don't know. I don't think I've ever used Quick Clot. Um, is this the, the stuff that's actually used in the operating room, or is it, uh, is it used outside, like if you get a cut or something like that? Well, you can buy them online. So they, they are used uh, in multiple settings, but they were originally developed by the military, and they're a hemostatic dressing that specifically contains an agent poured directly on a wound to stop bleeding. So uh, right now it uses a kaolin coated gauze that promotes blood clotting by having essentially signaling factors that promote the coagulation cascade. Before that, it used to be uh, zeolite beads um, that promoted blood clotting, but that gave off too much heat. And that meant you could clot the wounds, but you'd also get yourself a second degree burn. Oh, oh dear. Yeah, that's no good. So, uh, and that was discovered by Frank Hersey in 1984. Um, So essentially we've had quick clot since September 11th when they changed over to Kaolin. Okay, gotcha. Nice. That's a good compound. So it is the hemostatic device of choice on all branches of the military when you need to bind a wound and stop it bleeding. Works uh, in conjunction with and sometimes better than just a tourniquet alone. Very cool. I like it. So that's that's field medicine. Yeah. So we have, we've come quite a long way from that first uh, bandaged Johnson. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. From from uh, wounded bugs and mummies to bandaged Johnsons. Yes. Well, to Johnson's bandages, but yeah. Johnson's bandaging he... Johnson's. <laughs> like Earl Dixon and his wife. <laughs> Fair, yes. <laughs> and also they do have a really catchy theme song. That's it for this week. You know, if you'd like to learn more about wound care... Uh, We love to hear your comments, questions, and feedback. If you'd like to support us spiritually, emotionally, or financially, links to do that are in the show notes, along with links to some of the sources used in researching this episode. Our theme music is composed by Rachel Leisure. This show is produced by me with a lot of help from Dr. Santosh and friends, and this week from Band-Aids. Oh, hey, all those times when you were saying Johnson, was that a euphemism for penis? (laughs) That'd be a pretty big Johnson of a mistake.
<laughs> be a, just a, a huge, swollen, veiny Johnson. <laughs> well, I took it too far. I'm sorry. As always, until next time, stay safe, wear a mask, wash your hands, get a shot, and socially distance. And if you've been able to do all of those things, the weather's getting nicer and you've got somewhere to go, happy travels. Bye, guys. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.